Good morning, church. Again, like Andrew said, if you wouldn't, if you'd mind opening to Proverbs 26. Proverbs chapter 26. I'm going to read verses 4 and 5 for us this morning. I'm reading out of the ESV. Hear the word of the Lord. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. That is God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we need your wisdom. We need your wisdom and your spirit to understand your word. So would you illumine our hearts with affection for you, captivate our thoughts to be mindful of you, and empower our hands to work for you. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. Well, as we continue our degree program here at Wisdom University, I want to begin by asking a question. What makes a good teacher? For those of you homeschooled, it better be the sweat, sweat, blood, and tears of your mother and the agony and pain you caused her. But aside from that, seriously though, is it intellect and rhetoric? Is it being wowed by the eloquence and knowledge of the teacher with all of their degrees and placards and certificates? Is it the most popular teacher, the one everyone wants? Or maybe the most flexible and lenient grader and the softest with assignments? Maybe the one who's the most entertaining and fun and enjoyable. Ah, oh, they've got good humor. Though those are all tempting, I doubt that any of them are actually proper traits in a good measure of what makes a good teacher. Because good teachers need only be good at one thing, helping us, their students, understand the subject material at hand. We've probably all had those teachers where they had an adept gift at making the content palatable, digestible, and memorable. Taking that thing which is hard, confusing, maybe even boring, and understandable. I would suggest this is the common thread and most important part of being a really good teacher. This morning, our passage before us is one such case of teaching expertise on when and when not to open our mouths before a fool. The educational technique Solomon presents before his pupils is a seeming contradiction that only upon further investigation, the careful, thoughtful, and patient student finds that this was actually intentionally used for us to grasp, internalize, and then act upon the wisdom with our words, knowing when and when not to answer a fool. And when we think about our cultural moment today, right? This is very pertinent wisdom for us in our day-to-day lives. We have keyboard warriors trolling the internet. Everyone's valid opinion on Facebook, right? 
enraged politics with seemingly no middle ground, the endless buffet of conspiracy theories. You know, I've got a few I like, so they're fun to pick from every once in a while. But, you know, let alone what just happened to us a couple years ago with COVID, that unleashed a whole other slew of problems we have with relationships and opinions. And I wanted to continue with example after example after example to try and strike a nerve with everybody, actually, to prove the point that somewhere along our day-to-day life, we will, act, we will encounter the fool and we need this wisdom. But that is precisely why we need God's wisdom. Because we will encounter the fool every day of our lives. But God wants us to respond to fools with discernment. He wants to give us wisdom in how to relate and interact with the fool. And quick side comment. Isn't that in itself encouraging? God wants to offer us wisdom. God wants to help us with that. And it is God's good pleasure to give us his wisdom. We serve the gracious God who wants us to respond to fools with discernment. This is very encouraging. So as we dive into this proverbial juxtaposition, I want us to think through a few things. Namely, the presupposition the author assumes we are embracing as we read in order to accurately comprehend and parse out this biblical dialectic. I mean, how do we square this circle or seeming circle? The first presupposition I think that is important is life is messy. This proverb nearly self-authenticates that and attests to it on its own. I mean, geez, do we, do we answer or not? And why is... Why is the fool coming at us in so many different ways at so many different times? And it would be great if we could go through life and every situation and deal with it in black and white categories. It would be rather nice and neat. However, reality has proven to us that it doesn't work that way. Life is very complicated, nuanced, and for lack of a better word, gray. But this is exactly what wisdom speaks to, the messy gray areas of our lives. Along with that, notice in verse 4, I don't think Solomon is necessarily saying it is always sinful to answer a fool according to his folly. It's just foolish. Sometimes it's rather stupid and it lacks wisdom. To be sure, The response can be done sinfully, but it doesn't necessitate it. Yet, this is precisely what Proverbs is speaking to help us navigate. It's it's speaking into these situations. Between verses 4 and 5, Solomon is trying to help us think in categories of good, better, and best, profitable and useful, folly and wisdom, helpfulness and waste. As Jesus said, innocent as doves, wise as serpents. And do not give to dogs what is holy and throw your pearls before swine. In a word, discern. That lends us, I think, to our next presupposition. God's wisdom 
is worth seeking after because he is in control of all things and we are not. Most of us in a Reformed church, I don't think will object to this in theory, but theory is always challenged by the pressure cooker of reality, isn't it? We can all think about various times and ways things have happened to us and caused us to question God's sovereignty and ask him why. Are you really in control? What's going on here? In fact, for one shepherd of Israel, it lasted for a rather long and lengthy season of his life that should have normally, and every external view of it, it should have been characterized by a lot of prosperity. But through that period, David learned what it meant for God to be in control and that he was not. David was anointed king in in the 16th chapter of 1 Samuel, but not until the 5th chapter of 2 Samuel does he assume command of the entire nation. That was probably a period of three to five years and potentially eight to ten, depending on how you date it. The text doesn't actually tell us, so we don't know precisely. But in the midst of those chapters, he was largely on the run for his life from Saul, the dejected king who was trying to grasp onto his throne for his life by trying to kill David. How God's plan plays out in our lives is out of our control, yet it is in his control. And we must come to terms with that in order to understand and execute wisdom properly. And why must we come to terms with that if we are to become wise? Well, thanks for asking. That leads us to our last presupposition, which is this. Righteousness, based on fear of the Lord, is always the best choice. Let me say that again. Righteousness is always the best choice. With our sinful nature still being shed off, when there are what we perceive as delays in God's good plan and promises, you know, the real plan God has for us, I think we are tempted to take matters into our own hands, like Abraham and Sarah's maidservant bringing about Ishmael. It is in those moments that we forego fear of the Lord and trusting in him and his timing, and we reduce our ethic to the end justifies the means. However, biblical wisdom assumes we believe righteousness is always the best choice because fear of the Lord is the beginning, foundation, and part of every part of wisdom's journey. That being said, I want to turn our attention back to verses 4 and 5. How are we to interpret and understand this seeming juxtaposition? Let's read them again. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Now, we must first wrestle with the 
obvious elephant in the room, right? Are these proverbs contradicting one another? Thankfully, they are not because they're not actually contradictory statements. If the two proverbs were contradicting one another, I believe they would read, answer not a fool, or answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. See, the same result would happen from two different actions, and that's not what is going on. If that were the case, we'd be trapped in indecision, and that would truly be contradictory, and we'd be stuck. However, our, our teacher wants us to see a similar scenario that requires different action, which then produces a different outcome. These proverbs in themselves teach us about the nature of wisdom. A helpful way of looking at this, I, th- I think, is dissecting them into three categories. First is the circumstance, which is the same in both. It is the fool and his folly. There's the circumstance. Second, we have the action which we are to take or suggested to answer or to not answer the fool's folly. And finally, we have the consequential outcome of the action in the circumstance. Either the respondent being found foolish himself or the fool recognizing he isn't so smart after all. That is where things change as to, I believe, not contradict one another precisely. And and this is precisely actually what Solomon wants us to see discern and start to implement in our lives there are times where we need to answer or need not answer a fool because if we did it would just prove to make us like him on the other hand there are times when we need to say something that will not impact us but rather it will the fool it will be used to humble him But let's break this down a little further by asking two quick questions. What is this fool according to his folly? And when should we say something? How does this actually manifest in our lives? How do we go about that? Well, I think the first question, a fool according to his folly, is helpfully understood by the opposite. A wise man according to his wisdom. That is, if a wise man who rightly implements wisdom, then a fool is one who chooses folly and believes himself right upon it. So when we interact with people, are you interacting with somebody who is making poor choices and believing themselves right? And that's the scenario in front of us. So... When do we say something? And then when do we not? I think a good litmus test question to discern which action is proper to take in each scenario is to whose honor does it elevate? Does it make us look good? Does it show how much I know, how smart I am, how quick-witted? how logical and clear thinking, 
Or does this, does this elevate God's honor? Is there something I need to say here that is important where if I don't speak up, they might actually believe themselves to be right in, in an eternal matter? Now, think about these few scenarios I jotted down for us to think about. To snap back at your spouse or kids, maybe your siblings, when they are being irrational, right or wrong. To succumb to petty insults or unnecessary sarcasm with someone from the other side of the political aisle. Or letting your fury fly with the guy who is road raging and cuts you off, probably from New York. (laughs) At a social occasion where in a group of colleagues, everyone affirms the statement, all paths lead to heaven. We are supposed to learn from these proverbs that wisdom isn't simply knowledge. To quote Old Testament scholar Trimper Longman, professor of biblical studies at Westmont, he said, wisdom then is not a matter of memorizing proverbs and applying them mechanically and absolutely. Wisdom is knowing the right time and the right circumstance to apply the right principle to the right person. If we can return to David as he was running and hiding for his life from Saul, we actually witness him on two different occasions act upon both Proverbs, verses 4 and 5. Twice, David could have answered Saul according to his folly and been found to be just like him in his foolishness. 1 Samuel 24, David spared Saul's life in the cave. And two chapters later, he was actually sleeping and could have taken his life. But had David taken Saul's life, he would have been acting in accord with Saul, who was trying to take matters into his own hands and been found to be just like him, as verse 4 advocates. Yet, by withholding, David applies the wisdom this verse advises. However, after both encounters, he applies the wisdom of verse 5 and calls out to Saul, showing him how he spared his life and did not take it into his own hands. To which Saul is humbled, corrected, and even admits fault. David rightly applied the wisdom of verse 5, and Saul was not left wise in his own eyes. I want to encourage you actually to go read those two accounts in 1 Samuel 24 and 26 because they're they're such a good example of this proverb played out in real life. You know, it, it wouldn't even surprise me if Solomon had this in mind when he wrote this. Before moving on to our last concluding point, I want us to consider an important implication of these proverbs that they offer as a part of their wisdom. Because they are tied together and both of them are true, we are not allowed to use one at the exclusion of the other. 
When a situation calls for us to speak up, we are not allowed to throw our hands up and claim verse 4. Well, just better not speak today. You know, don't want to be a fool. Likewise, there are times we might too frequently solicit our opinions, you know, for their sake, helping them not be wise in their own eyes. When in reality, we should have acted upon verse 4. Wisdom demands discernment. And that is where the fear of the Lord is helpful. And also, and sometimes, the counsel of others for perspective. In the mid-1900s, when communism was taking control of Romania, many Christian leaders were blinded to its reality. Richard Wormbrandt, in his book, Tortured for Christ, recounts a congress of 4,000 Christian ministers that were convened by the Communist Party. At that congress, the Christians sided with and chose Joseph Stalin as the president of that congress and they found coexistence between Stalin's communism and Christianity. Richard and his wife were present at that meeting when he recounts this happening. His wife prompted him to, quote, stand up and wash away the shame from the face of Christ. They are spitting in his face. He replies, if I do so, you lose your husband. To which she replied, ladies, I don't wish to have a coward as a husband. Amen. We need Eve. He went on to speak out against this meeting and paid for it. And as they continued in Christian ministry, in what became communist Romania. They paid for it over and over and over again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Richard's answer was to no advantage of his own, but necessary, lest they be wise in their own eyes. As I conclude this morning, I want us to reflect upon how Christ exemplified this wisdom in his life and his ministry and then reflect about how our most holy and wise God has applied this wisdom to us in bringing upon our salvation. If we look at Matthew chapter 21, Jesus enters Jerusalem in the famous triumphal entry scene. And then he goes on to cleanse the temple by throwing over you know, money tables and money changers with a whip driving them out. The scene is electric. The whole city is in a buzz. Then he goes on to teach in the temple. And then he models Proverbs 26.5. We read this in Matthew 21.23-27. When he entered the temple... The chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. And he said, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will also ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. 
the baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? Then they discuss it among themselves, saying, well, if we say heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. I mean, let me interject real quick. This is the epitome of folly right before their eyes. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, so Jesus replies, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You see, Jesus answered them so as to not allow them to be wise in their own eyes. And in so doing, with his clever, very thoughtful response, he actually validated John the Baptist's ministry and his own. He shut him up. Their problem was that they continued to suppress the truth and deny it by going ahead and killing him, which is actually what I want us to look at right now. You see, Jesus, a few chapters later in Matthew 27, he he executes Proverbs 26.4. He answers not a fool according to their folly. 27, 11 to 14, when he's on trial, we read of this scenario. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Verse 13, then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. And it goes on. A few verses later, the crucifixion scene displays the same wisdom. I'm going to read a large portion of Matthew 27, verses 39 to 44. And I, I just want us to think about Jesus in light of this wisdom. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. We will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. And Jesus said nothing to them, just as Isaiah 53, 7 said. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. To think of the king of the universe, the creator 
the holy, most wise God being ridiculed in this manner and saying nothing. He of all people could have validated himself. And three days later, thankfully, he was. Yet, this was God's wisdom in redeeming the world. And if you are redeemed this morning, do you know what we have, all of us, in common? In a way, God actually answered us fools according to our folly, lest we be wise, eternally damned, in our own eyes forever. The word of the gospel so met us in our foolishness, sinfulness, depraved hearts, that it enlightened our hearts to grace. God did not treat us as our sin deserved. And this is exactly what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 1. And this is the word I want to leave us with this morning. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since... In the wisdom of God, the world did not go know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, that is you, beloved, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in this world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the lord we serve a good holy wise god let us be discerning pray with me gracious and merciful god thank you for such a great gift of salvation Help us to be wise and respond to fools with discernment. Give us a proper, healthy, and reverent fear of you. Lord, would you make us wise? We need your wisdom. God, we love you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.